riots from 2015 in Baltimore. That was when Freddie Gray died while in police custody, and the whole city melted down. Looks a lot like today, actually. I mean, protesters were out there with masks, running around with rocks, bottles, homemade weapons. They were attacking the police. Specifically, there were at least 20 officers injured, 250 people arrested, 280 to 350 businesses damaged, 150 vehicle fires, 60 structure fires, 27 drugstores looted, and even the National Guard got called in. It was estimated that about $20 million in damage was committed against the city residents' businesses and property. In the middle of the protest, I remember a story emerging about a mom who caught her son in the crowd throwing rocks. And she burst through the police line and confronted her son. She was slapping him all over the place and shoving him away from the crowd. And she was yelling at him that he wasn't going to be part of that kind of stuff. And I remember this story well because it got a lot of play in the media. And people praised this mom, and rightfully so. She was doing what she could do to instill some discipline in this young man. And she was trying to get him out of danger. She didn't want him on the streets. She didn't want the streets to claim her son. In all of this praise this mom was getting, I remember a headline vividly. It said, Forget the National Guard. Send in the moms. And I praise this mom. She was obviously trying. And I would imagine that there would have probably been more moms out there had they known that their boys were out in that crowd. But do you know what was obviously missing from that story? Who wasn't there trying to save that boy from the street? The father. Moms should not have to parent alone. And no matter how hard a single mom tries, fatherlessness is creating an insurmountable problem. What I'm about to say is not a dig on moms at all. If we want to fix violence and degradation in our communities, what we need is fathers to return back to the home. We need more fathers to take ownership of their children. We need fathers to instill principles in their boys, principles that define how men should behave in a civil society. From 1960 to 2012, the fatherless rate tripled, and it continues to rise. Now about one in three children live with a single mom. And isn't it interesting that over the past 30 years, the rise in violent crime parallels the rise in families abandoned by fathers? According to Rolf Lober, previous professor of psychiatry, psychology, and epidemiology at the Western Psychiatric Institute in the University Pittsburgh School of Medicine, he said a close and intense relationship between a boy and his father prevents hostility and inappropriate aggressiveness. I recently read an opinion piece in the Washington Times that started by saying, Imagine if all of the young men who've looted, thrown bricks at police officers, and set fires suddenly had to go home to strong fathers. The piece continues to say, Unfortunately, these days fathers are often disparaged, discounted, or even seen as the problem. This is so backwards to me. How do we have so much data about strong fathers and the benefits these fathers are to society and we continually misdiagnose the problems that plague our societies? How is it that in the face of these facts about what our children need to grow up and be well-functioning people in our society that we still allow the narrative to be diverted 
to matters of less significance. For example, the government has it all wrong. According to a study by the Heritage Foundation, the professional literature in criminology is quite at odds with the thinking in Washington. Many lawmakers in Congress and in the states assume that the high level of crime in America must have its roots in material conditions, such as poor employment opportunities and a shortage of adequately funded social programs. But members of Congress and other policymakers cannot understand the root causes of crime if they insist on viewing it purely in material terms. This view blinds policymakers to the personal aspects of crime, including moral failure, the refusal to exercise personal responsibility, and the inability or refusal to enter into family and community relationships based on love, respect, and attachment both to the broader community and to a common code of conduct. We focus so much on material things as the root causes of the crime and dysfunction in our neighborhoods and society that we're missing the point entirely. Continued in this article, it says, The root cause of violent crime thus is found in failed, intimate relationships of love and marriage and in the family. The breakdown of stable communities into crime-infested neighborhoods flows directly from this failure. In contrast, addressing the root causes of crime requires an understanding of the crucial elements of supportive family and community life. You know what? I had a very good father growing up. Still do have a good father. He's an amazing man. And you know what he would not allow? He would not allow us to be disrespectful. He would not allow us to fight. He would not allow contention in his home. He wouldn't allow us to be bullies. He didn't tolerate misbehavior in school. He held a high standard for us, and I was terrified to fail him. I was not terrified of him. I was terrified to fail him. In fact, one of the most painful memories I have from my childhood was when I played an April Fool's joke on him. I brought home a fake bus ticket saying that I had drug paraphernalia on the bus. And for those of you who never rode a bus, a bus ticket is a bad thing. Basically a little yellow note saying that you were bad on the school bus. As he read it, I watched his heart break. And then my heart broke. I saw how much my dad loved me in that moment and I saw how hurt he was. He was hurt because he thought he failed. He thought he was losing me. He knew he taught me better. I didn't see anger on his face. I just saw pain. And that is one of the most profound lessons I ever learned from him. And the lesson was that I didn't want to disappoint my dad. I wanted to be an honorable and good son. I wanted to live up to his standards and make him proud. And I love my dad for this experience. He was so authentic and real with me. And I saw his vulnerabilities in that moment. I mean, it's hard to explain. He would go out into the world every day and fight for us, and he didn't have an easy road by any means. Maybe a different story for a different day, but he never sacrificed his values. The world threw some really hard hits at my dad, and he kept getting back up, and he still gets up, and life is just not getting any easier on him. I learned from my dad the guiding principles to a successful life. Family, God, hard work, compassion, empathy. My dad never expected anyone else to teach us how to behave. We didn't learn how to be respectful to our mother from our mother. We learned it first from him and his example. He showed us through example how we should treat her, and if we crossed a line in how we treated mom, trust me, we heard about it. Dad set the standard, and we met the standard no matter what. I remember one time he explained to me in a lighthearted conversation 
He said, look, I chose your mother. I didn't choose you. Don't ever forget that. I mean, we were having a playful conversation at the time. It was in no way a threat or said hatefully. That said, he made it clear. You will treat your mother the way that I taught you. End of story. Dad put guardrails of acceptable behavior in our house, and he enforced them. He taught us some serious lessons when we crossed the line. It seems so simple to me. Fathers are naturally inclined to enforce guardrails more than moms. Again, not a dig on moms. Moms and dads, generally, are just different. In the book The Boy Crisis, Dr. Warren Farrell said, Boys with poorly enforced boundaries also become boys with poor impulse control. When the University of Chicago Crime Lab examined why 610 Chicago public school students were shot by fellow students during a recent one-and-a-half-year period, they found that lack of impulse control and a lack of conflict resolution and social skills were characteristic of the boys involved. However, what the study missed was that impulse control and social skills are some of the gifts of father involvement, and these boys' fathers were mostly absent. We have seen that the amount of time a father spends with a child is one of the strongest predictors of empathy in adulthood. Teaching a child to treat boundaries seriously teaches him or her to respect the needs of others, and respecting the needs of others contributes to empathy. It's well documented that fathers who are involved in the care of their children foster altruism and generosity, pro-social behaviors that have been associated with empathic concern. In a longitudinal study, The Family Origins of Empathic Concern, that lasted over 26 years, evaluating 13 separate variables, eight maternal characteristics, which are warmth, strictness, restricts sexuality, inhibits aggression, tolerates dependency, satisfaction with role as mother, use of physical punishment, and use of praise, and three paternal characteristics, involvement in child care, firmness in discipline, and warmth. The strongest correlated predictor of empathy in grown adults was the amount of paternal involvement in child care. In fact, this single variable accounted for more than the top three characteristics of mothers. Again, not a dig on moms. It's not my intention here. It's important to note that a catalyst of this correlation was the mother's tendency toward tolerating dependency. In other words, allowing a child to grow up at their own pace, not forcing them to grow up too fast, allowing children to be dependent on them, and embracing it. So the mother-father team is obviously the biggest winner here, with fatherhood involvement being the key factor predicting empathy in their children. Families are important. The parental structure is important. At least it is in this study regarding empathy. Interestingly enough, the biggest negative association with later empathic concern was disobedience. And it just so happens that dads are more likely to enforce boundaries, or nipping bad behavior in the bud. Warren Farrell in The Boy Crisis concluded, When dad has positive contact with children during the first two years, the children have fewer signs of unwanted and uncontrolled behavior. He also noted that boys living with dads have better enforced boundaries, leading to better impulse control and fewer discipline problems. In summary, children are more likely to behave better if their fathers are around. This has been confirmed multiple times, and it doesn't stop in childhood either. Children with strong fathers are better adults. In the book Fatherless America, 
David Blankenhorn said, Another common result of this failure, this failure being fatherlessness, is hypermasculinity, or what is frequently termed protest masculinity, the unrestricted, unmanhandled aggression and swagger of boys who must prove their manhood all by themselves without the help of a father. For these reasons, if we want to learn the identity of the rapist, the hater of women, the occupant of jail cells, we do not look first to boys with traditionally masculine fathers. We look first to the boys with no fathers. All right, dads, this should scare us. I certainly hope this causes some introspection here. Children need us. They need our time and our attention. They need our boundaries. They need our rules. And they need a home that is created and protected in strength and warmth. At the risk of sounding too political, I've been hearing a lot of talk about anti-family movements. There are groups that are all for the dissolution of the nuclear family. Strong nuclear families are foundational to leading a successful life. Unfortunately, having a stable nuclear family is difficult, and many people and families fall short of this, often through no fault of their own. But just because many struggle to achieve the standard of a nuclear family doesn't mean that we should, as a society, fight against the nuclear family. In other words, it isn't the fault of successful families that other families fail, so we shouldn't blame the failures on the institution. It is unbelievably stupid to do so. In fact, throughout history and across cultures and countries, the family unit has remained. The family redirects energy that would otherwise be destructive carnal tendencies toward the care and protection of others. Here's another great quote from Fatherless America. Across societies, married fatherhood is the single most reliable and relied upon prescription for socializing males. Thus, a society's procreative norms for men though seldom recognized as a determinant of violence, do more to determine the level of domestic violence than either legislative action or police procedures. For if the cultural antidote for male violence is monogamous marriage and responsible fatherhood, the breeding grounds for it are casual sex, family fragmentation, and non-marital childbearing. As we deinstitutionalize marriage and fracture fatherhood in our society, we must not be surprised by the rapid spread of male violence, especially violence against women. Honestly, men, dads, we need to lead. We really need to step up. The most feared group of people in this world should be dads. The government should be afraid to enact policies that negatively affect our families. People should be afraid to hurt our children. We should just be united in this. Frank Minotaur in his Washington Times article I mentioned earlier said, such is the moderating force good fathers play in their sons' lives. Unfortunately, these days fathers are often disparaged, discounted, or even seen as the problem by the progressive left, which controls so much of academia, the media, and popular culture. Men and fathers are being attacked. Good, honest attempts by men to be good fathers are often shown through a chauvinistic lens. Most attributes that make men good fathers are vilified. Chivalry, strength, competition, rules, problem-solving. In fact, it's so toxic these days that in his book, The Boy Crisis, Warren Farrell said that most men hope for daughters now, not sons. People would rather raise a girl because this world favors girls so much over boys now. The very existence of a boy 
incites trepidation and anxiety. This is unadulterated garbage. I just found out recently that I'm having a boy. We are expecting a boy right now. And once I found out, I had an entirely different flood of emotions come over me. Excitement was definitely there, but I felt an equal amount of this new burden of responsibility. When I first found out we were having our baby girl, I felt a need to protect her from this crazy world. And when I found out I was having a boy, I thought, dang, now I've got to teach him how to be a good man. I felt about two feet tall at the moment. In summary, negative outcomes of children are not just correlated with father absence. They are caused by father absence. In the boy crisis, Warren Farrell reported on a massive study that concluded with the causal relationship. He said, Leading researchers from Princeton, Cornell, and the University of California, Berkeley, teamed up to dissect the most sophisticated research designs to determine whether the negative outcomes of children without dads was caused by father absence or by other causes such as poverty. They confirmed that father absence is not just correlated with negative outcomes, but actually causes negative outcomes. Now, if you are not an academic, you may not know that this is exceedingly rare for leading academics to conclude that any single human factor such as dad deprivation would by itself cause problems. But as the researchers examined many different variables such as children from poor homes with fathers and discovered their mental health to be so much better than children from poor homes without dads and also saw their much better social and emotional adjustment, they were able to conclude that dad involvement actually causes these more positive outcomes. The takeaway? We need dads. Children need strong, caring, attentive, and hardworking fathers. The science is absolutely clear on this, and it is simply stupid to suggest that family structure is oppressive and should be abolished. It is stupid to say that because some people don't get to enjoy the privileges of growing up in a strong family, that we should lower the societal standard of family being the central unit. And we shouldn't incentivize the dissolution of families. We should fight for our families. Nobody will convey the worth of a child more than a doting, loving parent. Again, history shows us that healthy children and successful communities depend on fathers taking responsibility for their children, providing for them, teaching them, and loving them. I think the quote that says it best is from David O. McKay. He says, The home is the first and most effective place to learn the lessons of life, truth, honor, virtue, self-control, the value of education, honest work, and the purpose and privilege of life. Nothing can take the place of home in rearing and teaching children, and no other success can compensate for failure in the home.